Welcome to Hidden Headlines, the good news, the God news, news for the soul, stuff no one in the secular media is talking about. And I'm your host, Brian Sussman. Thanks for being with me. On this episode, you're going to get a little slice of heaven. It involves a gathering I was at just a few days ago. It was a gathering whereby the state of California pardoned a friend of mine for a crime he committed as a young man, a crime that actually involved the taking of someone's life. We'll get to that, a little slice of heaven. We've got, I could say a little slice of hell, but some might say, okay, that's a little over the top. Well, it has to do with this this talk about a Green New Deal, which, as I see it, doesn't have much to do with a Green New Deal at all as much as it does a Red Deal. Red is in communism. Red is in an ideology that will tolerate, that will not tolerate, will not tolerate religion. So I'm going to talk about that in no uncertain terms as well. And then we've got a crisis in truth. This has permeated the quote-unquote church, the body of people who believe in, or at least say they do, Jesus, evangelicals, a crisis of truth. Now, for that, we're going to bring in my good friend, Dr. Charlie Self. I always like to describe Dr. Self as the man with more degrees than a thermometer. One of his degrees is in theology. He's a popular speaker and author as well. One of the most common sense guys you will ever meet. But he talks about this crisis of truth. Here's a little snippet. What we've got is a, it's a crisis of truth and a crisis of how we arrive at the certainty of something. I mean, one of our former presidents wrote two autobiographies before he was even 50 years old, and uh, both of them semi-fictional, but what matters is the narrative, not the facts. So that's Dr. Charlie Self. He'll be coming up in just a little bit. Let's talk about A Slice of Heaven. (sighs) This was one of the most wonderful of nights, and it involved a dear friend of mine named Sam Huddleston. I'm putting together another chance podcast about his life as we speak. Actually, I was putting together this another chance podcast about Sam's life last year. In November, we had done our interview. I'd completed a, the entire project was almost done. And you know these another pod another chance podcasts. They're about people I know who have seen a divine reboot in their lives. Now, in Sam's case, well, at the age of 17, he was convicted of manslaughter. He was involved in taking another man's life. He went to prison, and it was in prison that he heard the word of God in no uncertain terms, and he surrendered his life to the Lord Jesus in prison. It wasn't jailhouse religion. It was the real deal. Sam gets out of prison, and that's where I met him shortly after he was let, let out of prison after doing five years. It was a five-to-life sentence. He committed the crime when he was 17. He was actually paroled five years later. I met him. We were both young guys. He's a little bit older than me. And he was a really in, a rather intimidating character until he smiled. The smile broke the ice, and I realized, okay, this is a pretty neat guy. We've been friends ever since. Sam has got his master's, got his PhD. 
He's been all over the world involved in race reconciliation. Even when he was a young man in prison, it was important for him as a young black man to let everyone know that we can all be friends. We can all be friends, especially with Jesus as our Lord. We can all be friends. I don't care what your color is. I love you because he loves you. Let's get along. So Sam's made a name for himself in terms of racial uh, reconciliation. He's done some wonderful work in, in Africa, helping bring wells to villages and remote places in Africa. And he's also on uh, a, a committee that runs one of the, uh, it's a global Christian denomination. He's one of 21 people who runs this, this global denomination that's been around for many, many years. So it's, it's, it's a long story. But the bottom line is uh, Sam had contacted me after we did the podcast and said, listen, do you know the governor? Well, I've met Jerry Brown a few times. He's been on my radio programs, and I knew him back when I was in television. But what, what do you want? I want him to pardon me. Well, I don't know him that well. Now, here's the other part of the story. The family of the victim, the family of the victim from Sam's crime reached out to Sam through a third party and let him know that they forgave him. So isn't it only appropriate? God forgave him first which is amazing, right? That's called amazing grace, folks. And then the family forgave him. That's called amazing grace. So for the state to follow suit, yeah, I think so. I think that would be appropriate. I didn't know Jerry Brown well enough to make that kind of a call. But there's a gentleman that I meet with occasionally. Now, you know my background. I'm Jewish. So an older Jewish man that we get together and break bread on a semi-regular basis. He knows Jerry Brown very well. So I called him and I said, shared with him the whole story and asked him if he could possibly give Jerry Brown a call, share the story. He said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. But what I will do is allow you to use my name. You write a letter, you send it to Jerry Brown, you include my name. I did. Sent the letter on a Friday. My friend heard from Jerry Brown on Monday saying the governor would like to pardon you. So it all happened. Jerry Brown's now out of office. My friend's been pardoned. We had the party. And what a slice of heaven, my friends. There were people from all backgrounds, black, brown, white, all ages. Can I tell you something? No one was fronting their race or ethnicity or culture or their accomplishments in life. <laughs> we were there in the name of Jesus, or as a, as a Jewish believer, in the name of Yeshua. It was just, it was so delightful. It was like being in heaven. And we were celebrating God's grace, how he forgave this man, and the family forgave this man, and finally the state. Anyway, I can't wait for the podcast. Uh, I'm, I'm putting it together and it should be out in a week or two. But I'll let you know. I really want you to hear this one. That'll be the Another Chance podcast. So that's the little slice of heaven. Now we go to the little slice of hell. I don't know how else to describe this. If you're a registered Democrat and a genuine follower of God, you need to run from your political party. If you're a person of good moral character, but not necessarily religious and a Democrat, take off. Seriously, run. Your party has gone ghoulish. Monday night, 
only three Democratic senators voted against infanticide. The Senate took a roll call vote. That means everyone, everyone was on the record, yay or nay, on the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act. The bill was introduced by Republican Nebraska Senator Ben Sass. It would provide medical care and legal protections to infants born alive after an attempted abortion. Sass initially called for unanimous consent on the measure a couple weeks ago, but Democratic Washington Senator Patty Murray blocked it. She's like the abortionist's abortion senator. So they brought this to a roll call vote Monday night. Only three Democrats broke with their party in favor of this bill. Only three Democrats essentially voted against infanticide. They were Democrat Pennsylvania Senator Bob Casey, as well as Democrat Alabama Senator Doug Jones, as well as Democrat West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin. Thank you, gentlemen, for doing the right thing. This party has gone flat-out ghoulish. God help help this nation. I'm serious. And, and I'm reminded of a scripture. It's Psalm 139. Psalm 139 is just so absolutely beautiful a scripture, isn't it? You know the one I'm talking about. The one that says, You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. We'll leave it at that. Okay, now let's move on to the next one. Otherwise, I will lose my mind in this Hidden Headlines podcast. And that has to do with the Green New Deal. This is another slice of not heaven. Uh, It was put forward by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the newly minted freshman House member from New York. Very liberal. But actually, this was first put together by Barack Obama when he was a senator from Illinois. And actually, way before that, It was put together by the United Nations. I talk about it in my book, Eco-Tyranny, How the Left's Green Agenda Will Dismantle America. And I I talk about the whole story. These, These books, yes, they're about the environment, but more importantly, they're about the roots of the environmental movement. There are some very nice people and well-meaning people who are all about the environment. They want the clean air. They want the clean water. They want a healthy environment. But folks, those people are being used by others who have very, very devious, might I say, diabolical purposes in mind. This And I'm not here to sell a book, but I'm just telling you, in this book, I examine the roots of the environmental movement all the way back to Karl Marx. Karl Marx was a very dangerous fellow, an atheist, as most com- as all communists are, and most socialists are. He's a- he was an atheist. He believed, in fact, the reason why he started his-, his first communist group was to vanquish the planet of Christianity. He saw Christianity as the biggest obstacle to progress in the world, Christianity. And that was his- the first group that he was a part of. Their goal was, quote, the liquidation of Christianity. So that's Karl Marx. So when I see these socialists and I see these communists, it it frightens me greatly because I know to fully accomplish what they would love to accomplish, it gets ugly. 
it gets downright hellish. So I'm just going to take you to uh, just the opening, the opening salvo here in eco-tyranny. Karl Marx believed in something he coined the three laws of matter. The three laws of matter encapsulated basically say some people were spit out of their mother's womb with a better brain than others. Those with the better brain have a responsibility, have a responsibility to rule over those with the, the lesser brain because otherwise those with the lesser brains will be left to themselves and they will destroy the planet and they will kill one another. That's, that's really the laws of matter. And so you have this elite class, people like Marx and others, and then the rest of us. And they want to control us with heavy-handed regulations. They want to limit our rights. Because again, if free, if left to our own devices, they believe we'll kill the planet and destroy one another. So that's, that's the laws of matter in a nutshell. I'm sure that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez believes that. I really do. Just like all these socialists and devout communists do. So let's take that to the environment. This is really amazing because Karl Marx and Frederick Engels, uh, they did see the environment as a great tool to put forward their ideology. They put forward the first green agenda. So now let me tell you about one of Karl Marx's disciples. His name was Sir Edwin Ray Lancaster. He was a zoologist at the University College in London. A frequent guest at Marx's household. He attended Marx's funeral. Lancaster's most popular screed was entitled Nature and Man, in which he described humans as, quote, the insurgent sons of nature. The insurgent sons of nature. That's what he said. We may indeed compare civilized man to a successful rebel against nature who by every step forward renders himself liable to greater and greater penalties. That's what he said about mankind. Now, Lancaster's star pupil was a man named Arthur Tainsley. Arthur Tainsley, you ready for this? He coined the term ecosystem. Tainsley was deeply concerned with the destructive human activities of the modern world particularly capitalism. That's what they hated the most. Quote, ecology must be applied to conditions brought by human activity. So he, and he coined the term ecology as a device to bring down capitalism. And then in the 1940s, Tainsley had a young protege named Charles Elton who worked with him to further develop the ecosystem concept. Elton's fiery writing style, I write in the book Eco-Tyranny, set the stage for the coming generation of eco-authors. In a blazing 1958 condemnation, well, the bottom line is, these guys were all condemning mankind and capitalism and, among other things, the expansion of Christianity, which they saw as a very, very dangerous ideology. So when I look at those touting this new Green Deal, I'm not seeing the environment. They're using the environment as a ploy to, to shackle us. They're using the environment as an opportunity to make us believe that we've only got 10 or 12 years. That means there have to be some heavy-handed things that take place. 
And if we have to knock you all backwards to the point where we live in huts, we will. And that we will is the part that scares me the most. Because if these people are ever to get the reins of power, it will get ugly like the Soviet Union. You know, in in the 1900s, keep this in mind, there were about 100 million people killed in the name of that ideology. It's frightening. It's chilling. You look at China today. You look at China today. Oh, my goodness. People are so industrious. Look, at they're all driving Teslas. My gosh, look at those high-rise buildings. All the technology. Yeah, to get to that point in their communist system, 60 million people had to die. You talk to our Chinese brothers and sisters who are Christians in that country today, running for their lives in many cases. You talk to believers who are from the former Soviet Union, and I have. Oh, I've met, I've met several who spent years in gulags for their faith. Folks, just a heads up, just a warning. Now, along those very lines, perhaps, is a survey that I found from Ligonier Ministries. It's their semi-annual, it's every two years they do this, it's the State of Theology Survey. It helps uncover, well, the theological temperature of the United States, and, and help Christians better understand today's culture and equip the church with better insights for discipleship. Now, I'm looking at some of the results from this, and I'm, I'm, I'm disturbed. I'm thinking, especially amongst the quote-unquote evangelical population. Now, I just consider myself to be a Jewish follower of Jesus. I don't consider myself to be an evangelical. But for those of you who may consider yourselves evangelicals, I get it. You're a follower of Jesus. You take this very seriously, and you want to evangelize. So I get it. I get the term. I get the term. And to me, it's it's a good term. But I'm reading all about evangelicals in this survey, and I'm just becoming so disheartened. I mean, for example, and we'll go through this with Dr. History in just a moment. Everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. Well, 52% of evangelicals agree with that. Listen, I want to believe people are good by nature, but they're not. We're all sinful. That's why we need a Savior. So that's just one example. Let's, let's go through more of this with my good friend, Dr. Charlie Self. Charlie and I have known each other for many years. He has a multitude of degrees. In fact, I always like to say he has more degrees than a thermometer. One of his degrees is in theology. He's a member of the Acton Institute. The Acton Institute is a group of some very, very high-level theologians and thinkers. He's written many books. He's online, drcharlieself.com, D-R, Charlie with an I-E-S-E-L-F.com. And I began my interview with Dr. Self by talking to him about the state of the church as we read in this State of Theology survey, which, from my standpoint, wasn't all that encouraging. Here's what Dr. Self had to say. Well, I'm both encouraged and discouraged. I'm encouraged that there is strong moral sensibility among large pockets of evangelicals, especially young people, on certain issues. And I'm discouraged that uh, we haven't done as well as as good a job as we should have been doing, equipping people with the full orb, moral and spiritual Christian worldview. And to be fair, though, um, you know God's people all through history have been inconsistent at times on different issues. 
depending upon what they've been exposed to and what they've had access to in terms of understanding. So what makes today so interesting is we've never had more resources for someone to be biblically and theologically literate and yet more confusion at the same time. So what's causing the confusion, Dr. Self? Well, I think part of it is um, we have been absolutely overtaken with the marketing of what I would describe as syncretism, toleration, and compassion. Syncretism is when you sort of combine different religious ideas into a smorgasbord, and then toleration has been redefined to from you and I living with our differences to me having to agree with you or I'm intolerant, and then compassion's been redefined as, you know, love and respect for all people. It's been redefined that, you know, we have to be so compassionate that we're actually going to change our moral stance on particular subjects. Okay, this is great. Now, syncretism, no doubt, is going to be uh, a, a word that most of us are not familiar with. It's It's new to me, Dr. History, so... Let's dive into this syncretism thing for just a moment. Could you unpack that for us? Well, its origins are found all through the Hebrew Scriptures, what we, what others call the Old Testament. I, I like to call the Hebrew Scriptures because it's one great Bible. And Israel never said no to the Lord God as the high and absolute and holy God uh, that He revealed Himself to be. They just happened to say yes to that and then say yes to a bunch of other gods alongside that God. And this is why it's why it's, the term is really interesting. S-Y-N means to put together. We have symphony or synchronicity, that kind of thing. And then cretism or credo means to put beliefs together that you really shouldn't put together. So in the Old Testament, you'd have Israel saying, yeah, yeah, we'll keep the Sabbath and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll love the Torah. But meanwhile, if we want a good crop, we better offer a few sacrifices to the Baals and the Asherahs. And, oh, you know, we kind of like a free-living, free lifestyle that comes with the with our pagan friends here. So that's where syncretism comes from. And today, of course, it's more subtle than that, but it's this notion that, for example, that Christians, Jews, and Muslims all worship the same God. That's a syncretistic notion. It doesn't mean that they may not have some similarities, but to say they worship the same God is to actually insult all three traditions. That's a great point. How about toleration? We all want to be tolerant individuals, but again, as you've noted, that term has been greatly defined, greatly redefined, hasn't it? Sure it has. In, in the 16th century, toleration meant you, you had to find a place where you could find your religion that was practiced by the prince or the king. By 1800, especially with the leadership of America, toleration meant living with our differences, but people free to practice or not practice a particular religion. Uh, and that really accelerated in the 1900s, where people could live peaceably. But in the last 40 years, toleration has moved from, hey, I don't agree with your particular worldview or your religion or even your lifestyle, but I'll be a good neighbor, to I'm supposed to affirm things that, that in my own tradition I object to. So, for example... Um, I was just reading about uh, a denomination that's going through all kinds of problems on, on gay marriage and gay ordination and different kinds of things, and I was reading somebody's account of their meeting, and they made my conservative position, my traditional position, sound like uh, an intolerant, uncompassionate, uncaring position, 
when in fact I'm perfectly happy to be good neighbors with anyone, but I'm not going to myself uh, sanctify a union that is not consistent with my understanding of the Scriptures. And, and this is interesting, Dr. Self, because when it comes to toleration, um, I can love the sinner and yet not love the sin. So in other words, it's the, it's the old slogan that we've all heard before, love the sinner, hate the sin. But to someone who's not a follower of Jesus, that sounds not just outlandish, but impossible, correct? Well, part of the problem is people identify every single behavior with the identity of the person. Well, all of us fall short. Uh, all of us are imperfect. And no matter how consciously and conscientiously we are practicing our faith, we all fall short. We need God's grace. That's the fundamental disposition of a follower of the Scriptures and a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. But at the same time, um, what's interesting is when people say, well, love the, you know, love the sin or hate the sin, well, if you, if you hate what I'm doing, you hate me because this is who I am. Well, if you're reduced to an erotic proclivity, if you're reduced to a particular couple of practices, what a deficient sense of what it means to be a human being. Hmm. Okay, so that leads us into the third item, and that's compassion. How has that been redefined? Well, compassion is at the heart of being a person of conscience. And compassion has been redefined from, you know, caring for the needs of others, having real empathy and sympathy with others, wanting to somehow make the world a better place with our generosity and with our concern. And it's been redefined. and also being welcoming and hospitable. All these are part of compassion. But now it's been redefined as never confronting particular behaviors, never confronting particular beliefs. And you can be compassionate, welcoming, hospitable, and still have lively debates and disagreements over moral and spiritual issues. And we've lost the ability to be civil in that kind of conversation. So how would Jesus be received? As we look at Jesus, and you look at the four Gospels, and you you can see how he lived, how he spoke, how he reacted to certain situations. So you take that same Jesus in 2019 and plant him right here in America. How would he be received? Well, he he would be troubling to people of every political temperamental, theological stripe, because he doesn't fit into our ideological boxes. So he's, he's not a communist, Marxist, or, or a socialist. He sees people as individuals. He, he sees the importance of, of doing good work, sees the importance of responsibility and stewardship. At the same time, he wouldn't be a hyper-libertarian, because one should be thinking about the impact of your actions on others, one should be doing things for the glory of God and for the good of others and for the common good, so he wouldn't fit in those narrow boxes. Uh, He would upset some conservatives with his calls for relational compassion, with his calls to examine all the systems that keep people from flourishing, and he would upset uh, liberals for sure because his moral stance was never unclear. No matter how much he forgave and loved and delivered and healed, his moral stance on particular things was never obscure. Okay, so that dovetails nicely into this Ligonier Ministries State of Theology State of Theology survey, which they do every couple of years. 
And I'm looking at the results of the survey from people who identify as evangelicals. When I personally think of the evangelicals, I'm thinking, okay, these people are, are serious about their faith. They would be born again. They understand basic biblical concepts, and they, they effort to live by those principles in their own lives on a, on a daily basis, not just on Sunday. So I'm looking at the results from the evangelicals, Charlie, and here's, here's one finding that just absolutely stunned me. Everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. So that's the statement. Do you agree or disagree? Everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. So 52% of evangelicals agree. Now I'm thinking if you're a quote-unquote evangelical, under my definition at least, <laughs> everyone should say no to that. We are, we are not good by nature according to, to the Scriptures, um, we're sinners by nature. Now, you're the theologian. Help me out. Am I missing something here? No, you're not missing anything. Um, the paradox is we are still made in the image of God, but that image has been effaced and has been uh, wounded by our sinfulness. And so what happens is people mistake the sense that we should love and respect people, that people are still capable of some good, they mistake that for the fact that we are lost sinners in desperate need of grace. But this is a this is a long-standing American problem. It goes all the way back to our first Great Awakening when evangelicalism was really born in America. Because when 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 the Wesley brothers who started the Methodist movement and George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards and all these revival speakers were speaking, you had a division in Protestant. Christianity at that moment between what they called the old lights and the new lights, and and what you had was many of the folks who were rejecting this revivalism, they were rejecting the kind of born-again life you were talking about, they they eventually devolved, they would say evolve, I call it devolving, mm -hmm. into deism, into liberal Protestantism, into a kind of a self, almost a self-help kind of Christianity, let's get rid of all the superstition and dogma. And so people like Thomas Jefferson were in that kind of camp. They, they want all the moral teaching of Jesus, they want the good morality of Christianity, but they don't want the hard bits about heaven and hell, the hard bits about the inspiration of Scripture and the resurrection and miracles. So this is a long-standing American problem. We want to believe the best about people. Okay, well, I, it's interesting to hear that this has always been an issue here in this country. I just look at my own life, Charlie, and you and I have known each other for a long time. I have so many flaws and so many shortcomings and things that I'm embarrassed about and things I wish I could change. And I thank God many times during the course of the day for the fact that he, he saved me just as I am, and he's trying to do something with me. And my sins, those flaws, those imperfections, those have all been washed, okay? That's, that's all under the bridge, and I'm just moving forward in the grace of God. But it's interesting to hear you say that this is, this is not an uncommon issue. No, it's not. And by the way, it doesn't necessarily affect, until the later 20th century, it didn't affect politics. You had conservative and liberal I don't even want to use those words, Republican, Democrat, whatever you want to call it. Right. We had people all over the political spectrum. But when it came to theology, when it came to morality, when it came to holiness, when it came to a passion for God and His truth, uh, there's been a long-standing division that goes all the way back to the 1700s in Protestantism. 
between the evangelical and what we would call the more mainline or liberal perspective. Okay, so then as we continue with this survey, uh, most people agree with this statement. God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Now that's 51% of evangelicals agree with that. And I'm thinking, well, what's the point of your belief in Jesus if, you know, all roads lead to God successfully? Well, once again, you have a problem with how people are understanding that. You know, you have, these, you have some fighting fundamentalists who say God doesn't even hear the prayers of Jews or Muslims, and, and people sort of recoil at that. Remember that tolerance that's part of the American mm-hmm. fabric? And so well-meaning evangelicals want to sort of leave room for the grace of God. So there's at least some people kind of in that camp there, but it also is misunderstanding that our salvation is only assured of being through Jesus Christ. That is, Acts 4.12 is the fundamental Christian confession. There's no other name under heaven whereby people can be saved. So uh, why else would we go to the highways and byways and global mission? I mean, why should we waste any more time sharing the gospel where it's not been heard if all we're doing is increasing people's guilt and they can be saved some other and, and this is a good point. I mean, I, I come to the microphone as a Jewish guy who met Yeshua. I mean, he, he Jesus, the Messiah. And uh, prior to that, oh, trust me, Charlie, I did worship God, and I did love God, and I did pray to God, but yes. I do know that his plan for me was, okay, you, you can reach out, you can pray, you can worship, you can love me, but that's not enough for your sins to be forgiven, and it's only through that Savior who died on the cross for all of our sins that I was able to get that part of the package. Well, and this is why the book of Romans is so important, um, chapters 3, 4, and 5 in particular, because what we discover is that God has always saved by grace. If you go back to the story of the Exodus, Mm -hmm. um, the, the people of Israel weren't saved by their good works. They were delivered out of Pharaoh's hands. Then then they were given a covenant. Then they were given the law. Um, Abraham wasn't saved by his circumcision and knowledge of perfection, but he was first chosen and delivered and sent, and, and then he followed through with his obedience. So it, God has always been a God of grace, and of course all of us leave final judgment of anybody's destiny to God. Um, that, that's a wonderful thing for us not to take the place of God and be the judge of anybody's destiny. What we can say with confidence as Christians, if you want assurance of eternal salvation and life forever in the presence of God and God's community, it only comes one way, and that's through Jesus Christ. Now, if you look at everyone who, who uh, went through and completed this survey, this is, this is Christians and non-Christians, 60% agree that religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. It's not about objective truth. So 60% of all respondents believe religious belief is a matter of personal opinion, not objective truth. Interestingly, 32% of evangelicals actually believe that religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. It's not about objective truth. And I'm thinking, where are these evangelicals being taught? And could, So well, could you address well, that for us? Well, there are two things that are going on there. One is the way some people are understanding the question is that somehow if you say objective truth, you're imposing your faith on somebody else. Mm-hmm. So, okay. uh, and the second thing is we're in a great crisis 
of anthropology right now, what it means to be human, and what it means to be male and female, but our second greatest crisis right now is epistemology. Fancy word for how do we know anything at all. Mm-hmm. And so we're in a crisis of, well, you, you've heard this, Brian, on the news all the time. This is the narrative that you're supposed to believe. Mm-hmm. And if the, if the facts don't line up with the narrative, uh, then, you know, we're going we're gonna to go ahead and adjust the facts. Or um, So what we've got is we've got people who, who, who have been bred on and fed for years, well, everybody's got a different angle on something, don't be intolerant. When in fact, there are things that are objectively true. What I find interesting, and I'm going to be a little critical now of some on the left here, I find interesting the people who want to insist I be an evolutionist, insist that I believe in climate change and all the UN reports on that. They insist that they want to insist that I that I look to science. I utterly deny all that science when it comes to what it means to be human and to be male and female. They utterly deny all that science when it comes from conception to birth of a baby. Hmm. So, what we've got is a it's a crisis of truth. And a crisis of how we arrive at the certainty of something. I mean, one of our former presidents wrote two autobiographies before he was even 50 years old, and uh, both of them semi-fictional. But what matters is the narrative, not the facts. No one, no one woke up one day and said, "I'm not going to listen to facts," or "I don't want," or "I don't think anything's true." It's just that there, there's a there's a visceral fear of being seen as intolerant or closed-minded or in some way imposing myself on others, when in fact, um, you know, you know, this, this is a crisis of, of understanding, and we need to reaffirm the fact that God has two books. He's got a holy book that we call the Hebrew and Greek scriptures, the Bible, but he's also got the book of empirical and rational data that's right out there for us to explore and keep refining. Uh, okay, so here's one thing I find very interesting about this survey. Of all participants, these are people who are Christians and people who are not, all participants now actually agree that abortion is a sin. 52% of all participants, so the majority of people in this country believe that abortion is wrong. In fact, they would even call it a sin. So what's happening here, Dr. Self? There is a phase shift on this particular issue that has to be very troubling to the left. What's going on here? Well, I think uh, what I just mentioned about um, empirical reality, I think we've had such better information about the stages of development of human life, and I think we've, been a- we've had the, the pro-life uh, individuals have done a much better job of expressing compassion. And the other thing that's been going on that nobody really has given enough credit to are the thousands of large and small agencies that are helping families and moms and children. Um, the church and other agencies have gotten into foster care. What's happened is not just opposing the right to choose, but now affirming and surrounding and, and caring for those who are facing this possible decision. Um, the, the people of conscience have done a much better job, and um, so... Even younger millennials are now saying, no, abortion isn't right. Now, they, they would probably in another, if the question was asked another way, do you want to restrict a woman's right to choose, they would probably answer no also. Hmm. Again, that's the, that's the crisis of objective truth, because the idea of restriction, 
restricting the idea of somehow that I, I'm, I'm saying you can't do something. Oh, that sounds really mean. That was my interview with Dr. Charlie Self, D-R Charlie with an I-E, Self, S-E-L-F, drcharlieself.com. By the way, all the stories we talked about on this week's Hidden Headlines can be found at briansussman.com. Also, you can email me via that website. Follow me on Twitter, Brian underscore Sussman. Facebook, Brian Sussman Show. Instagram, where more than anything, I just have a whole lot of clean fun. That's Brian Sussman Show as well. Thanks for listening, my friends. Please let others know about the Hidden Headlines podcast. Signing off, I'm Brian Sussman.